Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. They say he had a flat affect, Michael King, rarely showing emotion, his face a blank, expressionless, dead eyes, monotone speech, a disturbing thing to be around for any length of time. People like Michael King are negatively infectious. They make you feel bad capable of painting a sunny day gray with their cloudy disposition. Nothing can cheer them up. Rainy day people, Gordon Lightfoot spoke of them, the opposite of fair weather friends. Rainy day people like Michael King will surprise you. They'll be there if you need someone to drink with, to complain with, to hate on the world with. They love to wallow, to mutter, to seethe. And when you're down, they'll be there to soak up your negative energy then Lay it like a wet blanket over your back. They'll weigh you down, attempt to keep you low, sullen, miserable. Because, as the saying goes, misery loves company. But don't you dare snap out of it. Don't you go get all optimistic on them, developing a positive outlook, making plans to improve. How dare you? You think you're better than them? What, you're just going to screw after they were there for you? Abandon them? Big mistake. Big fucking mistake. Our perpetrator today, Michael King, got into a sledding accident when he was a child. Hit the front of his head so hard, it left a divot in his brain. And that wasn't good. It was almost like that divot were a switch. A switch that flipped a bright little boy's shine off. A rainy day person that felt slighted and left behind by every single human being he'd ever met. Michael Lee King... One drizzly day in January, decided to make misery in order to have some company. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Dark Green Camaro. January 17th, 2008. Northport, Sarasota, Florida. A desolate, half-developed neighborhood. You know the type. Front lawns of gravel. Every third house a deserted frame. Kids riding bikes in circles. Aimlessly jumping broken bricks. There's nowhere to go in a suburb developed for the hell of it. Then dropped like a hammer when the housing bubble burst. The rain on this dreary Thursday is welcome. So humid. So dusty. The air in Florida is like steam off of soup, but add the dust of this abandoned construction site that calls itself a community, a place that from above looks like a dry mouth littered with broken teeth, and you've got yourself a pretty shit place to be. No matter how low the rent and how nice the completed houses are, this place sucks. I imagine Michael King has this attitude about the area as he stalks its deserted streets and his dark green Camaro, dead eyes dancing a little as he justifies what he intends to do. Michael is an out-of-work plumber on the verge of bankruptcy. 
And when I say out of work, what I really mean is out of work ethic. There's work, but he's a rough 38, divorced, kind of fat, and has a divot in his brain. He just doesn't feel like working, is all. He's tired, sick and tired. The only thing Michael takes care of is his dirty gray mullet and mustache, these days a goatee to keep with the times. He needs these things. These are for the little ladies. Michael King likes them little, young, controllable. He regularly chats up teen girls and invites them back to his house to party. But lately, he's been striking out left and right, getting too old, too fat, too creepy. So now, the mind of Michael King, powered by a double-digit IQ, has come up with a plan. And it involves stealing a little lady from one of the houses out here in no man's land. What's the street name here? Latour. He's going to take something back to his rape room that he set up this morning at his place, not too far away. He can't wait. 21-year-old Denise Amber Lee, a stay-at-home mom, is tending to her little boys, Noah, two, and six-month-old Adam, when a dark green Camaro rolls slowly in front of the house and almost stops, filling the front bay window's view. She doesn't even notice. Denise has just finished giving the boys haircuts on the back porch and is finding a show on the television for them to watch, hand on her hip as the mullet outside swings and two dead eyes land on her from the Camaro through the window. Nate, her high school sweetheart, is at work. He's been juggling three jobs to help make ends meet. Today he's out there in the rain reading meters. Nate had called around 11 a.m. to make sure Denise had the windows open to save on air conditioning. She had, though it was still quite warm, in the house. She was wearing her husband's boxer shorts and a thin t-shirt when Michael King crept past the house, his dead eyes dancing over her for a deadly moment. Nate had warned his young wife that anyone on the street could see her walking around in her skimpy clothing, but the warning had been more of a flirt than a serious concern. Nobody ever came down their way, down the tour. A shiver maybe brings Denise a moment of uncomfortable relief from the heat as the dark green Camaro slinks away, slowly down the street like a predator feigning nonchalance, and pulls into a driveway leading to an empty lot before turning back around. It is just after 2.30 p.m. Sometimes Nate gets home early, and when Denise hears a vehicle pull into their driveway, she likely gets excited to have her sweetheart home. But it's not Nate. It's a deranged pervert with a gun. And when Denise Lee opens the front door to greet her husband, Michael King storms the entrance. Next door, Jennifer Eckert, a young woman of about Denise's same height, 5'2", weight, 100 pounds, and age, maybe even younger, even tinier, is home alone and looking out her window, wondering what the deal is with the dark green Camaro. It had been prowling up and down the street before seeming to settle on pulling in at the neighbor's house. Jennifer had been waiting for her boyfriend and had observed the whole strange incident. She'd even come in onto the porch in the end as the Camaro made its final pass before choosing the driveway, one house over. Jennifer had intended on asking the man if he needed help finding something. Perhaps his dog had run away, or a child had gone missing. Lucky for Jennifer, Michael King had already made up his mind and hadn't even noticed her. If he had, she was exactly his type. Young, petite, alone, and completely vulnerable. A much easier target than the one he had selected next door, in Denise. 
who is begging for her children to be left unharmed in this moment, stalling for time. And unbeknownst to King, she is the daughter of a cop, the head of the Marshal's Fugitive Task Force in nearby Charlotte County. Jennifer Eckert heads back inside, and a few minutes later hears car doors slamming. She peers at the window and watches as the dark green Camaro bounces backwards onto the street and then peels out. Whatever the man had been looking for, evidently he'd found it. And now the few people that are home on Latour Street come to their windows as well to see what all the commotion's about. Two more witnesses see a dark green Camaro, and one swears that hands are banging on the passenger side window as it passes. 45 minutes later, at about 3.20 p.m., Nate returns home. He has been calling Denise's cell phone without an answer and is worried. It's not like her. She always answers his calls. The two had been inseparable since their senior year, when Denise had asked Nate out on a date. He'd accepted, thinking it adorable that the usually shy, studious Denise had approached him, a popular jock, a baseball player. It was completely unexpected, and to everyone else, the two seemed an odd pairing at first. But three weeks later, on Valentine's Day, Nate gave Denise a promise ring, one she would never take off, a $40 silver ring with a heart on it. The two married soon after graduation, and before they knew it, were starting a family. Two kids, a rental house on the outskirts of Northport, Nate working multiple jobs with Denise happy homemaking. And though money had been tight, they were in love, overjoyed to be parents, healthy, and always with the support of their loving parents. Nate exits his vehicle, a Dodge Charger, dark green, with a similar look to the Camaro that had stolen his wife away. This detail may have significance. Perhaps Michael King had noticed the car on a previous drive-by, then noticed it gone today. Car guys are always checking out other men's vehicles, along with other men's wives. When Nate Lee goes to open his front door, he finds it locked. Strange. As he pulls his keys back out from his pocket, he looks up at the house and sees that the windows are closed and is doused with dread. He fumbles with the lock, gains entry, and is struck by how warm it is inside. What the hell is going on? Then, he hears the babies crying. Nate finds his boys huddled together in Adam's crib. This is something Denise would never do. Noah isn't old enough at two years to watch the baby. He might even accidentally harm Adam if left alone with him. Nate knows that this means Denise is definitely in trouble. Both boys have heavy diapers. Another bad sign. His wife rarely allows a pee to pass without a change. They've been here for a while. Cleaning the boys up out in the living room, Nate spots Denise's purse, her keys, and her cell phone. There are eight missed calls. Seven from him and one from her father, Rick. He'll call Rick. Rick's a cop. Rick will get things moving. But first, Nate knows he needs to call 911. Northport Emergency? Uh, yes, um, I'm at 7912 uh, Latour Avenue. Uh, mm -hmm. I just got home from work and my wife, I can't find her. My kids were in the house and I don't know where she is. I've looked every single place. Once help is on the way, Nate calls his father-in-law, a 25-year veteran of law enforcement. When Rick Goff answers, he thinks that Nate's responding to the message he left Denise, asking the kids if they'd like to come over for dinner. 
When Nate blurts out that Denise is missing, Rick responds with, quote, You're going to have to be real clear with what you mean by that, Nate. End quote. When Nate makes it clear what's happening, Rick, who's out on undercover duty, springs to action. The desolate suburb that felt so safe and out of the way to most living there is soon swarming with police activity. And when Denise's father gets the news that a neighbor spotted a dark green Camaro over at the house a couple of hours ago, followed by worse news from other witnesses of the car having crept into the neighborhood before speeding away with hands banging on the passenger side window, Rick Goff goes ballistic. Soon there are helicopters in the sky and a bolo out across multiple counties for a dark green Camaro. News outlets receive calls from Rick, and they listen closely, hearing the panic in the officer's voice. This is the real thing. No, she didn't go shopping. No, her, her husband didn't do something. My daughter's been stolen. You hear me? Some fucking a dark green Camaro stole my daughter. She was home alone, cutting the kid's hair. Jesus Christ, help me. Please. With every resource available rushing to solve the case of missing Denise Amber Lee, this is a situation most unusual and most advantageous for Denise's chances early on. Unfair, truly, that because her father was a cop, she got this exaggerated response. But you'll soon forgive it, for this is one of the most frustrating and unfair crimes you'll ever hear of. From what investigators can tell, going by witness accounts, a white male, tall, hefty, with light-colored hair, possibly a sleeveless shirt, basically some fucking hillbilly, had pulled his Camaro into the Lee driveway and bullied his way into the house. Maybe he had a weapon? The state of things in the house suggested that Denise had worked to save her children, convincing her abductor to allow her to put the kids in a secure spot. Did she kiss them goodbye? Only Michael King knows. And he'll never tell. Some think that the windows had been closed by Denise as a way of signaling to her husband, that something was wrong, though I think that was clear by the kids being left alone in the house, crying in a crib together. My thought is that Michael King closed the windows so that the neighbors wouldn't be alarmed by the distress calls from the children. Then he forced Denise out the door in her husband's underwear, locking the door from the inside before slamming it shut, cutting off the cries from Adam and Noah in the process, demanded Denise cut her own crying out. Then... He shoved her into the passenger side of the Camaro and peeled out. He took her back to his place. We know that for sure. Later, they'd find the rape room, rope, duct tape with Denise's hair stuck to it. Michael King had rushed back to his house and assaulted his captive in every way. Then he'd likely spent some time listening to her beg for her life while his dented brain worked to find a solution to the mess he'd made. He decides he needs help. Michael hustles Denise back out to the Camaro. She is covered in bruises from his molesting hands. She is hurting everywhere down there. The rape had been clumsy and brutal. The neighbors will later say that they didn't see or hear anything. Denise had been blindfolded as well as suffered her mouth being duct taped for this period of time. If the neighbors had have noticed anything peculiar going on at Michael King's house, they surely would have called it in. King's neighbors despised him and had long suspected him of being a cruel prankster, as from time to time their houses would get egged, a swimming pool would have battery acid dumped in it. Harmless stuff, really. But for all of the strange mischief that the area had experienced since that scumbag Mike had moved in, Mike himself 
had suffered none. They knew the big dummy was responsible, but nothing could be done without proof. All they had was his knowing grin and crazy eyes, too much white in them, that followed them any time he was out on the street. And when later they hear that Michael King is the prime suspect in a vicious kidnapping case, they're not surprised, in the least. He uses a headboard from the house to secure her somewhat in the back of the Camaro. But it's a half-assed try. She's loose back there before he hits the highway. Denise has given up on complying after what he did to her in that room. She's got the blindfold off, the duct tape from her mouth, and she is screaming for help. He takes her to his cousin's house, and when they arrive, tells Denise to keep her head down, keep quiet, or he'll kill her. He has a gun, a 9mm. But Denise either believes he won't do it by this point, or that he'll do it no matter what. Because when King rolls into his cousin Harold Muxlow's place, out in the sticks, and gets out, warning her again to keep quiet, she starts screaming. King returns, points the gun at her, tells her to shut the fuck up. She does. Denise hears the two men talking. Something about borrowing a shovel, a flashlight, a gas can. He's going to kill her. There's no doubt. Denise crawls into the front seat, and there, she discovers the cell phone. Unbelievable. The stupid idiot left his phone behind. Suddenly, King is returning. He puts the shovel in the back, then opens his door while saying goodbye and thank you to Harold, and Denise comes flying out, screaming for help, screaming for someone to call the police. King quickly corrals Denise and shoves her into the back seat again. What's going on, Mike? Don't worry about it. You know these fucking women, Harold. And then the Camaro is kicking up dust, Denise's screams fading as King drives them back out to the highway. It is now around 6.15 p.m. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences, they have the speech recognition feature, built-in true accent, gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses. For the rest of your life, redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, my life in a book. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com We'll send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. 
And then she can either type her response or use their voice to text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom may have given you a lifetime of stories, and this is your chance to give her a way to share them. I'm looking forward to using it with my lady and uh, having her do it for my kids. I think it would be a cool thing for them to have, something quite different, something to hang on to. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code DARKTOPIC at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code DARKTOPIC for 10% off today. Denise stops screaming and begins negotiating. It's all just a distraction. She has the phone, and she's typed in 911. She begins the work of attempting to communicate to the operator her predicament, all while making her captor believe she is speaking to him. It is difficult to listen to. I'll play you some snippets from this call that lasted a little over six minutes before Michael King wised up. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, so I played the whole thing. Um, I thought that if I said snippets, you might hang in there a little bit longer. I, it's really important to hear the whole thing, and nobody wants to hear that. So I tricked you, and I apologize, but <clears throat> it's necessary. Like, I I don't know where your phone is. No, sir. I'm recording this after the fact. I've listened back. I'm doing the edit. She said please 17 times, and she wasn't saying please to her captor, Michael King. She was saying please to the 911 call operator. Denise did everything she could to answer the questions of that operator, saying, I don't know, in, 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 in like crying form. I don't know, and, and so, disguising it from her captor. Um, she shouted out, her family, she said her beautiful husband, she wants to see her kids again. When they asked where she was, she would say, where are we going? 
um, when they asked if she was blindfolded, she said, I can't see where are like she answered everything. Um, the operator asked at one point your home address. Like, come on. She, like, why would you, who gives a shit what her home, you know, she's, she asked her, are you, are you Denise? What's your, what's your last name? And she says Lee. She tells her, it's Lee. Can you confirm it's Lee? She said it. She can't say it again, stupid. She's in the situation. Like, catch it. Catch it. Ask her, what do you need to tell me? Is there anything you can tell me? Or stay on the phone. Keep quiet. We'll trace this call. We get it. Denise is calling, basically, to give them enough time to trace the call where they're at. And she gives them six minutes. Unfortunately, the phone is a piece of shit. And um, like it was said in, in, in the uh, documentary that I watched, the detective's daughter, I think it was Dateline, uh, they said it, was, it wasn't like finding a, a needle in a haystack with what they were getting, what they got from this call. It was like finding haystacks. So they were pinging off of uh, towers. And they could approximate like the locations in which she was going through in, in the uh, dark green Camaro as this call went on, but by the time they did that, they were long gone. So a very frustrating call. Yeah, that was the Jonas Brothers on the uh, on the radio or about to come on. Uh, anything else there? I don't know. Uh, it, it was a lot. And uh, let's get back into the episode and the rest of this. But, man, I, I, I know I, I was there with you <laughs> you're listening to that uh the frustration with the operator i feel it i'd like to say give her a break um she's doing her best but when she asked her what her home address is I'm like come on she get with it she can't tell you her home address like he'll he'll catch on the guy is can you turn down the radio? She even got, Denise even got Michael King to, well, she she tried to get him to turn down the radio saying, I can't hear you. After they asked that, she was responding as best as she could. Ask her better questions. I don't have the better questions to ask. But do, at the very least, don't ask her stupid ass questions like her home address. And I'm sorry, that, that might be a little unfair to the operator. It really might be. Um, she's trying to figure out where she is, but I mean, to me, it's like, it's pretty obvious by this point that she's, she's in a car. Um, she's being driven around. It's, uh, it's, it's very clear to me, but maybe because I already knew that. I mean, maybe the operator can't figure that out and thinks maybe she's at home. I don't, I don't know. But also this has been a, a couple of hours into Denise Amberlee missing and everybody knows about this. They should. Maybe it's maybe they haven't passed on the information to nine one one call operators when they have helicopters in the sky and police officers everywhere. Ah, what is going on? Anyways, calm down, get back into it. Um, yeah, all right, back to the program. The phone was a cheap one, so the location from which it was placed could not be precisely tracked. But the owner of the phone, his name they knew now, Michael King. And once the call had been played for Denise's father, and he confirmed through tears and gritted teeth that the voice was in fact his daughter's, police rushed to the address of Michael King, 
arriving at 6.42 p.m. There, they found what came to be known as the Rape Room, a bloody mattress, rope, duct tape with hair on it that would later be confirmed to be Denise's. Other DNA would later help prove what had happened in here. They were so close. They could literally smell it, what had happened in this room. Had just happened. It stank of fear and disgust, of ravenous lust and unstoppable evil. So quiet. Deafening. But the silence of the home was not really silence at all. More like shock. Like if the walls could speak, they wouldn't be able to anyways. The violence had left a residue. And for those investigating the rape room, they may as well have been inside of a ringing ear. Ringing. The phones in this case continued to ring. Not long after Michael King had left with a naked, screaming girl, Cousin Harold had decided to call his daughter to share his concern. She had a brain, thankfully, and immediately called 911. And the girl came out of the, like, got out of the car, and my, co- my dad's cousin went and put her back in the car, and when she got out, okay, where's your, where's your dad's house? Um, it's in Northport. Where would he be going with this female? He came over to my dad's house, borrowed a shovel, a gas tank, and found out. Okay, we've been looking for this female. You are just so wonderful to call us and give us this, this information. Okay? Yeah. Not long after this tip, another comes in. This one from a woman on the 41 Highway, heading from Northport into Charlotte County. She had heard screaming coming from a dark-colored Camaro, which she mistakes for being blue. She hears the screaming while waiting for a light to change. The man driving the Camaro looks over, gives her a death stare, and then the light turns green, and two hands appear in the back window to begin pounding the glass as the Camaro takes off. This witness, Janet Kowalski, believes she's seeing a child abduction. Denise's hands are so small. And she calls 911. This call lands in a different call center in Charlotte County, which shouldn't matter much as that's where Denise's dad worked out of, and everybody by this point is aware of the dark green Camaro and the abduction of Denise Amber Lee. 911, where's the emergency? Well, I'm on 41 going south, and uh, I'm going to do a cross street right now. It's at, I'm on Chamberlain, I just crossed Chamberlain, I'm on 41 going south. frustrating. With all the excitement and the fact that it was shift change time at the Charlotte County 911, 
this call doesn't do what it should have done. Later, once this travesty has completed itself, Denise's family, mainly her father and husband, will work tirelessly to get laws passed in Florida for more comprehensive 911 training. But I'm not sure you can train common sense. The dispatcher who took this call only yelled out across the room to everyone what she was hearing. She never put the information into the system. She assumed somebody else had passed it on. But in the excitement, nobody did anything with this information. Then there was a shift change. It turns out that there were multiple Charlotte County units in that area. One was even parked on Toledo Blade and had been passed by the dark green Camaro three to five minutes after the 911 call that should have saved Denise's life came in. This is an error that paved the way for Michael King and his dark green Camaro all the way out into the desolate marshy field a few miles from the final sighting of Denise Amberley. A field where she was ordered to strip to get on her knees, along with God knows what else. Certainly she made a last-ditch effort to change her abductor's mind, pleading, promising, apologizing, but nothing could change that flat effect, that dead look in Michael's eyes. He presses the gun to her forehead, and under a soon-to-be-haunted tree, dripping with rain, executes the young woman, wife, daughter, mother, At 9.15 p.m. on this same day, January 17th, 2008, in Northport, Florida, a long, drawn-out, miserable day for all involved, a state trooper pulls over a dark green Camaro on Highway 75, four miles north of the last sighting of Denise Lee, her hands in the window. The officer looks in the back and sees nothing but palm prints through the glass. In the front, he sees a large, insane-looking Michael King. And from the start, the officer isn't okay with the energy. When Mike reaches over to the passenger side, the officer demands King put his hands up. But he won't. He's getting something. The officer runs across the highway and screams for King to get out of the Camaro, hands where he can see them. Backup is on the way. The officer is no coward. He is just aware of how important it is to keep the suspect alive. He's the only one who knows, after all, where Denise is. King finally begins to exit, feet first, laying on his belly, coming out backwards, and the officer moves in for the arrest. He gets the cuffs on King and asks what the fuck is he doing. King is soaking wet, and he's not saying a word. Many believe he had been throwing evidence out the passenger side window, but we'll never know. The side of the highway isn't searched immediately, and by the time it is, It's been days, and the long grass that had been there has been mowed down, revealing nothing of interest, though perhaps something had been destroyed or discovered in that time. This is the least of our worries, though, when it comes to missed opportunities in this case. Michael King denied knowing what had happened to her, claiming he'd been kidnapped himself by whomever had taken Denise Lee, but had been released. Mike wasn't the unknown abductor's type, perhaps. It's a ridiculous story. Why would someone kidnap the young woman and then kidnap Michael King? For what purpose? They don't know each other. There's no connection between the two. Nobody believes it. King tries blaming friends of his. He just throws shit at the wall, hoping for something to stick, never helping to clear up any of the questions still unanswered in this case. Like, why Denise? Why anyone? Thankfully, the evidence speaks for itself. 
some of which, it turns out, Denise Lee had planted herself. In the back seat of the Camaro, investigators find her promise ring from Nate, the silver one with the heart that she never took off, not until she needed to, as a way to show she'd been in the dark green Camaro. Also, she planted strands of her hair, stuffed them into the seats whenever she could, just in case she didn't make it. Denise had done everything in her power to survive the ordeal. But when the six-minute phone call to 911 failed her because King had a cheap pay-as-you-go phone with no trace technology and the cries for help fell on the deaf ears of Cousin Harold, who called in later himself, by the way, anonymously and much too late, when the lady saw her hands in the window, heard her screams, called 911 and offered to follow the dark green Camaro, but couldn't get over in time. Then 911 blew the call so badly I should just end this episode with a massive fart sound effect. I mean, my God. She had every cop, every news outlet, many citizens looking for, and that dark green Camaro, which spent way too much time out in the open with a screaming woman inside, seemed to phantom throughout. It's so sad, so frustrating to know how close she had been to coming home. And it's inspiring yet so terrible to think of Denise pulling out strands of her hair and planting them, knowing her father would make sure the car was searched thoroughly if he ever found it. Two days after the arrest, a cadaver dog gets a hit out in the marsh. They finally find her, and it's pitiful how close she was this whole episode, from start to finish. She'd been just out of reach. It's almost like that something that from time to time looks out for people was looking out for Michael King for some reason. And that's a depressing thought, an unnecessary thought, granted, but here we are. If you believe in such things, I guess you could say that along with the 911 debacle in this case, even the spirits got their wires crossed. Mud from the shovel and the Camaro's tires are matched to the type of the gravesite. It is thought that King was soaking wet upon arrest because he'd washed dirt and blood off of himself in a water source somewhere in the marsh. But still, Denise's blood was found on his underwear. Michael Lee King. His middle name was the same as Denise's last. Yes, I've left it out to this point to avoid confusion. Michael King was convicted on August 29th of 2009, found guilty of kidnapping with intent to commit a felony, sexual battery, and first-degree murder. On September 4, 2009, at 2.45 p.m., the jury unanimously handed down the recommended sentence of death. He still awaits imposition of that sentence today. Denise's father, Rick Goff, and husband, Nate Lee, have never stopped fighting for Denise, pushing for increased 911 operator training in Florida and succeeding somewhat with the Denise Amber Lee Act being passed in Florida providing additional volunteer training for 911 operators. Rick and Nate continue to push for Denise's law, which would see mandatory training and certification be implemented for Florida operators. They are just so frustrated. It's a case that's hard to swallow, hard to accept, hard to let go of. Denise's father was asked how he's doing these days, and he said something along the lines of, there are no good days since this happened to my daughter. Everyone was, is, a wreck over what happened. Everyone had to listen to the 911 call I played earlier in its entirety, after all. Two little boys were left behind, 
Their father, who was working three jobs to support them and their now-deceased mother, was obviously devastated. Some money came, though, $1.2 million from a lawsuit against Charlotte County for the blown 911 call from Jane Kowalski, a nine-minute call giving cross streets and visual confirmation of the Camaro's whereabouts until it finally escaped her view down Toledo Blade and past multiple sleeping units. And I'm struggling to wrap this up, searching for a way to end on something that resembles a positive or at the very least thoughtful note. I'm resisting the urge to throw in that fart sound effect I spoke of earlier. That's how stretched out I feel in this case at the end here. Desperate, almost. But what do I know? What do any of us know of desperation? True desperation. Denise Amber Lee knew it in those dark hours being hustled around in that dark green Camaro. Yet she fought every second of the way, created her own breaks, jumped on every opportunity. And I think even though it didn't work out, that she should not be remembered as a victim, but as a fighter, an incredibly resourceful young woman who did everything in her power to come back home. And though the spirits, if they exist, failed her, the spirit of Denise Amber Lee and its strength, real or imagined, will not fail us if summoned in our own dark hours, in our own dark green Camaro. And that will do it. That was a rough one. Uh, there's a, I don't know what part to pick out. Um, she, she did everything. She did everything she could. I think there's a lot to be learned from the way that Denise handled that situation. I especially um, admire the fact that once she realized, I think that's what, she, what happened. I think once she realized after she had been taken to that room, that she was probably going to die. And um, she just started doing whatever she could. She just started banging on the windows, <laughs> called 911, um, screaming, you know. In the in the recording, you could probably hear the, the radio turn up at one point. He turns the radio up, obviously, to drown out how, how much she had been screaming. It's tough. It's really tough. If you watch the documentary, uh, it's called The Detective's Daughter. Um, I have a link for it in the show notes. You can uh, see Denise's father, Rick Goff, and the pain, the pain in him. It's worth checking out if you want to feel even worse. Michael King, he's still alive. Um, he's not looking too good. And uh, hopefully they'll execute him soon. I don't know what the holdup is on that. I'm not going to sit here and try to promote capital punishment. I'm just saying that guy should be dead. They should put another dent in his brain with a with a bullet. There is a foundation, the, the Denise Amber Lee Foundation, and you can find all... I have a link for that in the show notes, too. It's been uh, 14 years since that happened, I think. And uh, they're still pushing to get everything done that they want to get done when it comes to 911 mandated operator training. Uh, her husband, Nate, Denise's husband, Nate, goes around uh, trying to support 911 call operators, talking to them, giving them additional information himself. Um, they're not bitter as they could be. I think initially they were. Um, they did get a settlement 
I believe 200,000, 250,000 went to each of the kids, 250,000 went to Nate himself, and then the rest went to her family, to Denise's family. I believe that's what how that worked out. And now they just have, I mean, there's nothing you can do. You just have to accept that this happened. There's, it, uh, I can't imagine what that, what that feels like. Um, I'm doing well. I'm trying to come back more consistently. Like I've said, the proof will be in whether or not you hear from me next week. I hope I'm really enjoying. I mean, as, as tough as these are, uh, as tough as that one was in particular, I'm really enjoying the, the process and, and just uh, being absorbed by, by research and writing. Again, I, got, I feel like I'm really back in the swing of things. I got my head right. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. But I'm, I'm feeling really good. Maybe I'll do a Waking Up with Jack Luna again coming soon. And uh, we'll catch up properly. Until then, thank you so much for your patience and your time. Please check out 1159 Media on Patreon. Uh, I do a monthly monster at Tier 13 once a month now, where I cover a serial killer. Um, A lot of the cases I'm going to be doing for Dark Topic publicly here are just, I don't want to call them one-offs, but, you know, just like a single crime that I can really focus on and flesh out and do the storytelling thing that I do. And uh, over on Patreon, you can once a month get the monthly monster where I cover a serial killer, kind of like I, I used to do a lot more of that with Dark Topic. At our $5 tier, you can get 911 Calls Plus. That's more 911 calls. You get early releases of uh, our other podcast, True Crime Kent, which you should check out, and uh, 911 Calls Podcast, along with Dark Topic. Uh, what else do you get? Brutal is a podcast we do every once in a while, Kent, Kent and myself. And we have another podcast called The Hugs Podcast with the operator and Kent Chungus. We've got a lot going on with 1159 Media. If you want to check it all out, come on over to uh, www.patreon.com slash 1159media. Until next time, keep those eyes cacked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you. Thank you.